So what we've been doing for the past, I guess this is the second Sunday, we're going through our sermon series on passages. Um, and when Pastor Peter invited me to preach this morning, I was really, really excited about it. And I don't usually get really, really excited when he asked me to preach. I usually get really, really nervous. Um, <laughs> but I didn't have time to get nervous because I really love testimonies. And one of my favorite one-liners in scripture um, comes from the book of Reve- Revelation, Revelation 2.11, and it's, um, and they, a- they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. I love that verse. And it reminds me of one of the stories in Joshua when God had brought the people through to the promised land and they had crossed over the Jordan River and he said to them, you know, go back and he told them to pick up some stones and I want you to build this stone altar in the middle of the river because, you know, one day there are going to be future generations that will come along and they'll look at those stones and they'll say, you know, you know, what the heck is the pile of stones in the river for? And you can tell them the story of how I brought you over. You can tell them your testimony, right? So in a lot of ways, our testimonies are our little altars in the Jordan River. They are ways for us to remember the things that God has done in our own lives and to share that with other people. And when we share it with other people, we're pointing in the direction of God to say, look how awesome he is. And if he did it for me, then what he can do it for you, right? It's a very tangible way that we minister to one another. It's a very tangible way that we are the hands and the feet of Christ to one another. So I was real, real excited about this message. And I knew exactly what I was going to preach on as soon as he asked me to do it. Because if you say to me, you know, this is about passages, you're going to share your testimony and a verse that God has really used in your life to inspire you, to motivate you, to pull you out, to, it's meant something to you. I know exactly what that verse is. For me, it's Romans 8, and specifically verses 28 through 30. And it'll come up on the screen that you can read along, but it's, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And it continues, for we know that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image, to the likeness of his son, that he might be a firstborn among, among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Well, um, my mom and my biological dad, and my mom is here today. You can wave to the people. There we go. Yes. So... (laughs) She's beautiful. Uh, My mom and my biological dad divorced when I was about four years old, somewhere in that age range. And um, I remember when they were together, you know, we used to go to church kind of, you know, on a fairly regular basis, off and on. But when they divorced, we stopped going to church. But I do remember liking church. I always kind of enjoyed it. Now, despite not going to church, my mother is and was a very spiritual person. So she always taught my brother and I um, to pray. She's someone who believes in prayer. She believes that God hears her and she believes that God answers her. And so that is something that was sort of instilled in us at at a very young age. And God showed me that my mama was right at a very young age. One of my most vivid memories happened when I was probably about five years old. Um, I was a part of this after-school program at the YMCA, and like after-school programs, you know, there was a time when we would go outside, they'd take us all, and we'd play. We'd line up in twos, and we'd walk out of our classroom down this long corridor that led to the playground. 
Well, beyond the playground, there was this big field, this open field, and older kids, now by older, I was five, so they were probably seven, you know, ten. So we're not talking teenagers here, but the older kids would be out in the field, and they would do what older kids do. So they'd play kickball and dodgeball and, you know, ball kinds of activities. And so, <laughs> um, but one of my favorite things to do was to go out with one of my best friends in the after-school program, uh, and we would look for four-leaf clovers. Now, I don't actually know if four-leaf clovers exist. Does anybody know if four-leaf clovers They do exist. Okay, because I, you know, in my adult, I've never found one. And so I kind of started to think that maybe someone had lied to me. <laughs> But that's good. I'm glad they existed. So this is what we would do. We'd go out and we'd search for four-leaf clovers. They are very difficult to find. But it was fun, and so we would get lost in the field. Um, well, on this particular event, this particular day, uh, we must have gone a little bit further than we should have gone and stayed out a little bit longer than we should have stayed because when we got done and were ready to go join, you know, the rest of the kids in the playground, everybody was gone. The playground was empty. They had left us outside. <laughs> Now, for a five-year-old, this was terrifying. I, was, I knew that all was lost. I was never going to see my mother and my brother again. It was just, it was terrible. And the door that led to, you know, back inside, it was one of those big steel gray doors that locks. So we couldn't get in. So we're standing out there and we're screaming and we're crying and we're banging on the doors. And it felt like we were out there for hours. Now, I'm sure we were only out there for about five minutes. They could not have possibly left us out there for as long as it felt. But it seemed like forever. And I was so scared. And so tears are streaming down my little five-year-old face. And this is the first memory that I have of praying. I asked God to please send somebody to open the door. <laughs> Just please, God. And two seconds after I had said my little prayer, somebody came and opened the door. Now, I looked at this person like they were an angel <laughs> of God. They could have been glowing at that moment. I could not believe it. I'm standing there, and I'm like, I, I asked God to send somebody to open the door, and someone came and opened the door. I walked back down that corridor knowing that my mama was right. God does hear prayer, and God does answer prayer. I walked down that corridor knowing that God cared about me, that he listened to me, and that he cared enough to do what I asked him to do. <laughs> I walked down that door, a different kind of kid, right? Now, of course, you know, I was still five. I'm sure about 10 minutes later, I was playing and I was fine. But that was an important moment in my life. In all things... God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Well, my mom remarried when I was about seven years old, and my stepdad had spent some time in California, and he convinced my mom that she would love it and that we would love it, and so we all moved, packed up, and moved to East Palo Alto, California. Now, he was right. I loved this place. There were tons of kids there. Um, we moved there in the summer of 85. I'm about to be 30 this year. Um, to this day, it's still one of the best summers of my life. It was, it was incredible. We could play all day. We could run around. I mean, it was, it was great. East Palo Alto was an awesome place to live, and I loved being there. Now, often when I tell folks that I'm from East Palo Alto, if they're familiar with the Bay Area um, or if they know Stanford University, they'll smile real big and they'll start to talk to me about how beautiful that area is and, you know, how lovely Stanford's campus is. And I usually I smile and say, it is, it is, it's lovely. Um, but East Palo Alto is not 
the east side of Palo Alto. And that's typically what they think, right? They think, oh, like I'm from the south side of Chicago, I'm from the east part of Palo Alto. Not exactly. East Palo Alto, or EPA as we call it, is a separate city. And it's very different from Palo Alto. About a year after we moved to East Palo Alto, there was um, a liquor store about maybe five blocks or so up the road from us, and it became the hotspot for the drug dealers. They had a payphone in front of the corner store, so apparently it was, you know, like an office of sorts um, for, the, for the drug dealers. And, um, <laughs> you know, and we would still try to sneak down there sometimes to, to buy candy, but really it was supposed to be off limits. Um, in 1993, EPA held, held the title of murder capital of the world, um, and it, you know, it, it had some problems. And like a lot of urban, poor black communities, you know, there was subpar education, there was crime, there was drugs. But East Palo Alto was an awesome place to grow up, and I would not have wanted to grow up in any other city. See, in EPA, there was sort of this community within a community. So my parents and several other grown folk in the, in the neighborhood, um, people who were educated, people who um, just were good folk, right? They were committed to the black community. These people were active. They were at city council meetings, they were at school board meetings, they were starting nonprofits for community development. If they saw a problem in the neighborhood, they were the solution. My mother and, I have a bunch of mamas, but my mother and many of my aunties, I guess is the best way to explain it here, these people were crazy, they would go and grab kids on the street, you know, drug dealers, right, and start telling them about what they don't need to be doing out here on the corner. And we would always be horrified, like you can't talk to people who sell drugs like that, you can't, please, please, just get in the car. But that, you know, that was what they did, right? They were, they were very radical people, and they cared about their community. And so what they did was they instilled that in their kids. So we went to city council meetings, and we went to school board meetings, and we uh, campaigned for city council folk and for mayors, and we were taught to care about what was going on around us. These folk also started a school, and it's a school that I went to for black nationalist kids and the kids of black nationalists, and we learned um, not only a great, we not only got a great education, but we learned to love ourselves, to know who we were as, as black young men and women. At that time, you know, I was, I graduated at eighth grade, so not young men and women, boys and girls, but we learned to love who we were. It was an Afrocentric environment, um, an Afrocentric community, people who were passionate about black folk. And this is the environment that I grew up in. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So while my family was very spiritual, and spirituality was also a big part of um, the school that I went to, we weren't Christian. And in fact, by the time I got to high school, I was quite antagonistic towards Christians. I had pretty much come to believe that there were many different paths to God and that um, all of them were equally viable. Well, all, almost all of them, not, not Christianity. But all the other ones were very viable paths to God. Um, I, I didn't really particularly care for Christians. I was confrontational <laughs> towards Christians. And I'm a good debater, so... I could tear people down, I could, and that's so sad, it's mean, and I've prayed for forgiveness for it, but I would tear people down, right? And, and I enjoyed this. This was one of my pastimes. Me and my friends would, you know, start to challenge people about their faith, and they could never, you know, never stand against us, which also made me not like Christians. I'm like, you don't even know what you believe. You don't know why you believe. I've never read the Bible, and you can't, why can't you tell me what you believe, right? So anyway, here I am, I'm in high school, and I'm not really feeling Christianity at all. 
But something happened the summer of 1993. I started to have a crisis of faith. It was probably more like a crisis of logic. So like I said, up to this point, I believe that many different paths, all viable, you know, minus Christianity, they would all get us to God. Well, this started to make no sense to me. All of a sudden, all these little truths started to seem kind of incompatible, right? So on the one hand, um, I had studied Islam, and it talks about paradise, and they have a heaven of sorts, right? An afterlife, this place that we go. And I'm thinking, well, how can that be true? And at the same time, there's other faith traditions that say that that's not true. There is no heaven. There is no afterlife. It didn't make sense. So I can't sit here and say, yeah, there's all just a bunch of little truths. At, at some point, it's just none of it is true. Either there is truth or there's no truth. So I'm having this crisis of logic. At the same time that I'm having my personal little crisis, my family was going through crisis. My dad, who I love, who had, started, um, who had struggled with a heroin addiction throughout my life, um, had relapsed. And so my mom and my dad lost the business that they had started. So all of a sudden, things in my life were falling apart. I needed God then more than I can ever remember having needed him before that point. But at the same time that I needed God more than I had ever needed God, I no longer knew that my image of God was true. Does that make sense? I need you, God, but I don't know that I know who you are anymore. You can imagine this was a big crisis. <laughs> so that summer, my prayer was that God would lead me to truth. I remember laying in my bed every night and praying that prayer. Now, see, I might not have known exactly who God was anymore, but the one thing I was absolutely convinced of was that God did still care for me. He still heard me when I prayed, and if I prayed, he would answer my prayer. So that was my prayer. That's what got me through the summer of 1993. Well, at the end of that time, as a result of my father's addiction, uh, my mother had to make the very difficult decision to send my brother and I to, to Cincinnati, Ohio, for a year to live with my biological father. Now, my biological father and I have an awesome relationship right now, and I thank God for it, but at that time, um, not so much. And so... <laughs> That, you know, and so me, I was the oldest, and so I took it on myself to just try to be happy about it. Because, I, you know, your mother, no one's mother wants to have to send their child <laughs> to go live somewhere else that far away. And I knew it was hard for my mom, so I wanted to be strong. But I wasn't, you know, pleased. When we got to Cincinnati, um, my dad, he's a Christian. Now, again, I'm very antagonistic towards Christians, particularly black Christians, and I'm living in Cincinnati away from my mama with the daddy that I'm not really that close to. Can you see how this, this wasn't so, like, not, not the best situation. So one of the things that we had to do as a requirement, every Sunday my dad had us in church. Now, uh, me and my brother were not feeling this at all, and we protested so much in the beginning. We would try to wake up like at 10.45, church starts at 11. I mean, we did everything we possibly could to get out of this from outright just having debates. You know, I'm like, you can't force us to be Christian, you know. But it was battles. Eventually, of course, we had to give in, and we would go every Sunday. So what that meant was that on a regular basis, weekly, I was hearing sermons, right? I was hearing the word for the first time in a long time. See, in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. 
So the second thing that happened when I was in Cincinnati is I met this wonderful woman named Latoma Barnett. Now, Latoma Barnett is no joke. This is someone, she, now she loves God, strong woman of God, but she will cut you in a minute. <laughs> She'll cut you. And so, <laughs> and so, and so, Latoma could hang with me. So we met, I met her and, you know, found out she was a Christian and we didn't get along at first. Um, but then we started talking and I went into my thing. I would come at her with my best. This doesn't make any sense. How can you believe this? How can you believe that? And Latoma would come right back at me with this is how I can believe that. And this is how I can believe this. And sometimes she didn't have an answer. And she would say, you know what? I don't know, but I know where I can find it. And she pulled out her little Bible and we'd sit there together while she found an answer to my question. And so we'd go back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, oh, okay, you apparently know what you believe. (laughs) And I respected that. And I respected her. And so she invited me to her youth group. And it was something to do on a Friday night. So I said yes. And I would sit there. And I thought that what they were saying was kind of ridiculous because the rest of them were a little silly. But I respected her. (laughs) And it was fun. So I kept going. And I kept going. Well, by the time um, I was done with school that year, I had kind of changed. I had started to see Christianity in a different light. Maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And I had gotten a different image of Jesus Christ. I was now reading scripture for myself. And so I had now begun to see Jesus as someone who actually did care about what was going on in the world. It wasn't just a bunch of silly people talking about, let me get to heaven and I'll just sit back and be happy with what I have here till I get to heaven. But that people were active. Jesus was about doing stuff. So that was a huge thing for my life. The third thing that happened in Cincinnati is that my dad remarried, and he married um, my stepmother, Judy Clark, who is an awesome woman of God. And she was someone, now had had he remarried about four months sooner, we probably wouldn't have gotten along. But by the time she was brought into his life, I had come to a point where I didn't dismiss this thing wholeheartedly, so I was able to see her. And this is someone who knows the word, she knows God, and she believes it, and she's patient. So we would sit and have conversations about it. She was someone who I respected. So she was an image of a Christian woman that I could kind of vibe with. She brought me my first Bible and she she set me down and and helped me go through it and pointed out some some scriptures um, that she thought would be helpful. She got me books about, you know, what God says about sex and what God says about all these other kinds of things. It was a really cool sort of relationship that we developed. She taught me how to, you know, keep the Jehovah's Witnesses from coming to my... Well, there were lots of things that she <laughs> handed down to me that I, I appreciate to this, to this day. <laughs> so by the time I left Cincinnati and came back to California, um, my heart had been softened. I was right at the verge. I hadn't yet accepted God, Jesus Christ yet, but I certainly was like itching to. You know what I mean? I just needed that one little thing to push me right over the edge. And somehow when I got there, my sister, who we were staying with at the time, my sister had started to go to church. There was this boy in high school who she thought was cute, and his father was a pastor. So she had started to go to church, and, um, and I would go with her, right? <laughs> but again, I was hearing the word, and I was thinking, you know what? My sister doesn't think it's crazy either, and she grew up like I grew up. So maybe we could do this thing. Well, to make a long story short, um, my junior year of high school in front of a televangelist on television, um, at midnight, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I was crying, I touched the screen, and I prayed with him. (laughs) 
And that is probably one of the corniest ways to come to Christ. (laughs) But it's okay. I love my little story. I love my little testimony. Because I know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. See, this is one of the first passages that I ever read when, as a believer. And when I read it, I was moved because some things just started making sense to me. Now, the way I've told my testimony, it, it might lead you to sort of misread or misunderstand this passage. See, one might look at my story and think, oh, look how wonderful God is. God made everything in her life sort of fit together so she would become a Christian, Right? And in fact, some translations read like that. You all might be familiar with the reading of that passage that says, in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose and et cetera, et cetera, right? And you might say, well, what's the big difference between works and works together? Well, see, I think that that interpretation works together sort of misses a big point of what this passage is about, especially about what it's about for me. (laughs) In all things, God works. In all things, God works. See, I think that sometimes we have this image of God as sort of like running behind the moments of our lives, trying to clean them up and put them together and make something happen for us, right? And we often fail to see God in the moments, right? But in all things, God works. When I look back over my faith journey, one thing that's very clear to me is that God was always at work in my life. From that day on the playground when he first taught me that he does hear and answer my prayers to my black nationalist upbringing that taught me that I ought to be concerned about the social world. In all things, God was working. He was working to draw me to himself. He was working to conform me to the image of Christ even before I knew Christ and had accepted Christ. In all things, God works. Now, some of you may be thinking, now, wait a minute, there is another part that you're not addressing. The passage says that God works for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, and you're right. But Paul is not talking about meritocracy here. This isn't an if-then statement. If you love God, then God will work to make things work out for you, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's use of the phrase for those who love him denotes the people of God. And there's something more important about that. See, it says that second part, and are called according to his purpose. This is about God's actions, God initiating a relationship with us. It has nothing to do with us. It's all God. The key in all this language is this foreknowledge and predestination. Now, see, a good Calvinist will look at this passage and they will say, See, this is evidence of the doctrine of predestination. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, the basic gist is that God has predestined some of us for salvation and some of us for damnation. And now that sounds harsh. So the idea behind it is that um, there are some people in the world who are not going to accept the gospel. It'll it'll be presented to them and they will not accept it. Now, because God is all-knowing, he knows in advance who those people are, right? He has foreknowledge of who those folks are. So the people who will reject him have in essence already rejected him. So those are the people who are predestined for damnation. Does that make sense? Right, so that's, and there's more to it, but that's the basic gist of predestination. But see, as some scholars 
point out, the biblical use of the, the knowing language, know and foreknow, is a little bit different than that. See, rather than, being in use, rather than being used in Scripture to say what God knew in advance, it's often used to talk about relationship, God entering into relationship with people, people entering into relationship with people. <laughs> um, in Amos 3, 2, you see a great example of this. It says um, that you only have, and this is God speaking to the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, clearly God is not saying that of all the people on the earth, the only folk he knows anything about are the children of Israel, right? That's, that wouldn't make any sense, right? But what he's saying is, yeah, of all the people of the earth, of all the families of the earth, at that point in time, God had only entered into relationship with them. So this language about knowledge, foreknowledge, it's about God's work. God initiating some sort of a relationship with the people of God. The people of God who may not know him yet, but who he has called, right, and who he has predestined. Let's look at that word predestined. The Greek word is parizo, and that's probably not pronounced right, but it simply means to direct a person to a particular goal, to direct a person to a particular goal. What is the goal? The goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. The goal is to know Christ, to be in relationship with Christ. So what is Paul talking about? What he's saying is that God has chosen to enter into relationship which, which, with each and every one of us. He has chosen to enter into a relationship with humanity. And in every moment, in every moment of my life, in every moment of your life, in all things, God is working to bring us into that relationship. God is working to conform us to the image that he has for us, the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So for those of you who are like me and you might not have grown up in a Christian home, let me tell you today, God's work in your life did not begin the day you accepted him as Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, right? God was working to bring you to that point. For those of you who grew up in a Christian home and maybe you've had some moments where you walked away from the church and you turned your back on God and you left because of pain, because of whatever, God didn't stop working in your life because you decided, I can't do this anymore, right? God was working in your life in all of the moments of your life to bring you back to him, to restore that relationship with you. Um, in one of Pastor Peter's sermons on sex that he does, he always jokes about how he would sit in his dorm room and he'd be kind of jealous of his roommate who wasn't a Christian and who was out there, you know, having fun, getting busy, doing what he wanted to do. And he was thinking to himself, man, you know, I should have waited before I became Christian. And there are probably a lot of us <laughs> who can relate to that on some level, right? But for many of us, when we look at the times in our lives when we had turned away from God or when we didn't know God, all we can feel is shame and regret, maybe some anger. We have a lot of feelings. I've had people tell me, man, I just, I wish I had known God sooner. And, and that's an awesome testament. But often the reason we feel that way is because we fail to recognize that in all things, God was working. So what we do, we see those as unredeemable God-forsaken times. That's before I was, you know, I didn't know the Lord then, and I did all this kind of stuff, and then we hang our head in shame. But see, because in all things God is working, we don't have to live in shame, right? We don't have to be bound by our mistakes and constantly beating ourselves up like, oh, why did I do that? How, where did I go wrong? Because in all things God was working. I can tell you today that every moment of your life has led you to this place. 
Every moment of your life has shaped you to the person that you are today. And some of y'all might be sitting here, but I'm not, you know, I don't like who I am today. This moment in your life, God is working to conform you to the image of his son, to bring him, bring you into relationship with himself. In all things, God is working. See, that's why we can live our lives without shame and regret. In every moment, every success, every failure, every joy, every moment of pain, God is working. Now, let me be very clear. There is sin in the world, right? So I'm not trying to say to you today that everything that has ever happened to you, God made it happen, right? There's some things that happen because of sin. Some of us experience pain, suffering, loss, death, and it's because of sin, But in all things, even in those things, God is working to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and to bring us into right relationship with him. And Jesus Christ is an excellent example of this. See, we all know, most of us know, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And I can say to you that today that not only did Jesus Christ die for our sins, Jesus Christ died because of our sin. Now you might say, well, what is the difference? See, I'm being extremely literal here. Not only did Jesus Christ die because there was sin and he died so that we could be brought into relationship with God and it's just kind of, you know, metaphysical sort of out there thing. Jesus Christ died the way that he died. He suffered the way that he suffered because there was sin in the world. He died because Pilate was a coward. He died because the Pharisees were wicked. He died because the Romans had a horrible jacked up system of crucifixion that said we will hang a person, nail a person on a cross. That is why he suffered and died the way that he did, because there was sin in the world. Does that make sense? But in all things, God is working for our good to bring us into relationship with him. See, throughout the years, um, This passage has been one that the Holy Spirit has often used to remind me of this. When I first got saved and the Lord, you know, sort of brought this passage to me, I heard him saying, I am with you. I have always been with you and I will always be with you. And there have been many times in my life where the Holy Spirit has used this to remind me of that. I am with you. I have always been with you and I will always be with you conforming you to the image of Christ. There have been times when I have felt far away from God, when I have lost direction and I have felt like I'm just lost in the world, and the Holy Spirit has come to me with this passage to say, I am with you, I have always been with you, and I will always be with you, conforming you to the image of my Son, bringing you into relationship with me. There have also been times when I have experienced pain, I wasn't lost, I wasn't, you know, I hadn't fallen away, just some loss, grief, pain that had happened in my life. Um, In October of this year, my husband and I had a miscarriage. Now, uh, months before we had started trying to get pregnant, uh, my husband had purchased all of the furniture for our nursery. If you've been to our house, you've seen it. We have a fully furnished nursery. It's nicer than the nurseries of some people who have children. (laughs) It's a very nice nursery. Now, if you know Carlos, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Carlos is a planner, and when he sets his mind to something, he goes after it 210%. (laughs) Uh, He had set his mind to being a parent, and he was pursuing it. So when I found out I was pregnant, we, we found out we were pregnant, we were so excited so excited. 
And there was absolutely nothing in our mind that made us think that there would be anything less than a beautiful, healthy baby at the end of nine months. But that was not the case. We had a miscarriage. And I have to tell you that that was one of the hardest things I have ever been through in my life. Not just emotionally, but physically. It was awful. And I stand here today and I can tell you that there are two ways that I see God moving in that situation, right? God was working in that moment in my life. Carlos and I, we had a great marriage, but that brought us even closer together. I can tell you that this experience reminded us of the sovereignty of God. We uh, are both pretty ambitious people. We're the kind of folk who set goals, and we set goals for ourselves, and we have accomplished those goals. Like I said, my husband is planner number one, and so he sets a goal, and he moves until he gets it, and we usually get the things that we plan for. I was reminded that, you know, you don't have control over every area of your life, and that was an important reminder to me. But I can also stand here today and tell you that knowing that, knowing that God was working in that moment does not make it any less sad. It does not make me any less disappointed. It does not make me any less frustrated with the situation. And I can also tell you that knowing that God was working in that moment and that time does not make me any less fearful of when we get pregnant again having another miscarriage. Because I don't want to ever go through that again. I'm sure that in the years that are come, God is going to reveal even more things to me the ways that he was working in that moment. And I'm sure in the years to come, the pain will get less and less and less. So what, what is my point? See, what I don't want you to do is walk away from here and think that what I'm saying is that in all things, God has promised us happy, warm fuzzies. That in all things, it might be really, really bad, but as long as you know God is working, you can be happy. No, absolutely not. There are some people in here today who are going through very hard times. You may have lost a relationship that meant something to you. Maybe you lost a job that meant something to you. Maybe you just lost some direction. You, were, you had set a course, you were on that course, and all of a sudden you got knocked off and you have absolutely no idea what you should be doing now. And it doesn't matter how bad that relationship was, how wrong that job was, or how off that direction was. It does not change the fact that you are sitting here today and maybe you are feeling sadness, maybe you are feeling grief, loss, frustration, anger. It's okay to feel that. To know that God is moving and working in all of the moments of our lives does not mean that we have to walk around with huge smiles, always pretending to be glad, always pretending that it's all okay. Sometimes it's just not okay. Sometimes we know God is working, we know God is moving, but right now I just don't feel too good about what's happening in my life, what has happened in my life. And the good news is that not only is God working in all this, he knows how you feel. So not only is he conforming you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, not only is he bringing you into relationship with him, but he's wiping those tears away from your eyes. And he's not wiping them away and saying, stop crying now, stop crying now. He's holding you and he's saying, you go ahead and feel what you feel. Because as we walk with him and as we are in relationship with him, the pain gets less because we, we can see him more and he comforts us and we have our brothers and our sisters and our friends who can comfort us. And I believe that I will always have a longing for that child, right? Will I always be sad and disappointed? Probably not. But is it okay for me to always long for that child? Absolutely. Is God in those moments still? Absolutely. Was God comforting me? Did I feel God's presence in his Absolutely. That's the good news. Not only does God work in all the moments of our lives to bring us to himself, to conform us to the image of Christ, but in all of those moments, he is in them, with us, 
not just outside of them trying to put it all together and figure. He is with us. So if you're here today and you are feeling like there's something that you're going through that it don't feel good, and maybe you are not able to see God, my encouragement to you, my hope for you, is that you will realize that God is with you. There is absolutely no part of your life, past or present, that is God forsaken. There is absolutely no part of your life, past or present, that is God forsaken. God is with you. God is working for your good to bring you into relationship with him to conform you to the image of Christ, to comfort you in your joy, in your sorrow, in your success, in your failure. God is with you. God is in it. God is working. God is moving. So I pray that today you will be encouraged. I am encouraged. Hallelujah. (laughs) So I pray that you all will be encouraged. Amen. Will you guys pray with me? Thank you, Jesus. God, you are such an awesome God. You are such an awesome God, and I thank you that you are a patient God. I thank you that you take time to speak to us, to minister to us, to be with us. You are all-knowing. You know that our knowledge is so finite, so small, and yet you take time to reveal yourself to us. You show us yourself in small, itsy-bitsy pieces so we can digest it, and I thank you for it, Lord. God, I pray that you would be with each and every person that is in this congregation. I pray, Lord, that they would be reminded, Holy Spirit, that you would remind them constantly that you are with them, that you are in each and every moment of their lives, that you are working for their good, that you are working for their good. God, I pray that you would encourage this congregation. I thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you that you are our Father. I thank you that you are not running behind our mess trying to clean it up, but that you see us, you know us, and you are with us always. God, we just love you. We just love you and adore you. And we pray that you will be blessed by the rest of this sermon and blessed by our lives. In Christ's name, amen.